oftentimes it's someone we love dearly, no matter, no matter who it is, standing at a graveside always brings a wrench, a tragedy, and as we place someone in the black hole of the grave, it opens up something of a hole in our life that's never filled. The person who used to be there is now there only in memory, not in presence. But Jesus changes all that. It brings a new perspective on burial. With Christ, we stand at the graveside with a brand new perspective. His burial has changed the way we see our burial and the burial of those in Christ. And the first thing to notice uh, when we think about life lessons for us is that Jesus' burial was our burial. Jesus' burial was our burial. What a strange thing to say. But that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Look what he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now we're just basically focusing on the burial side for this, this talk. But notice, we were buried with him. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried with him. Everything that Jesus did, he did for us. Because he was the Son of God, the Messiah, his whole life and ministry were not just his own as an individual, as one man. No, because he was Messiah, the Son of God, everything he did as one man was for the many, for others. What he did, he did for us. And when he did what he did, we were already involved. So when he was buried, we were buried. What a marvellous thought. It was true of his death, and time and again the New Testament talks about us dying with Christ. That's there in Romans 6 as well. But it's true of his burial as well. We died, we were buried with Christ. Now notice when you read chapter 6, this, this uh, has several life lessons for us. Look in verse 6, for example. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Just like when we bury someone, their body is brought to nothing. So when we're buried with Christ, our old life of sin is brought to nothing. And so the life lesson from Jesus' burial in which we were involved issues in an, an imperative, in a, in, a, in a command. Down in chapter 6, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. When you think about the possibility of sin in the present time, they're not a possibility for you if you're someone who's come to Christ. Because your old life has been buried. It's as if you've put it in his grave. When Jesus died, you died. Your old self died. Your sinful self died. And that means we should be done with the life of sin. It's gone. We should treat it as dead and buried. Okay? So there's the first place that we have this reflection upon um, uh, Christ's burial. We were buried with him. The other place that this is said is in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now there's similar teaching in Colossians 2 that we were buried with Christ. Uh, but it's in a special context. In, in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Don't be led astray 
by fine-sounding ideas that are part of our world, but they're actually backed up by demonic spirits, elemental spirits. Don't be led astray for these. Um, Now, uh, human philosophy, subject to demonic forces, according to Paul here. Satan, Jesus said, is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. There's all kind of lies around us coming to us through human tradition and philosophy. Um, notice that he doesn't always, Satan doesn't always work through dramatic Hollywood head-spinning kind of ways, but more regularly he works through subtle and therefore far more powerful ways, and here it's through human philosophy and empty deceit and human tradition. This is part of our fallen, sinful world in which we live in the midst of this every day. Our newspapers, our social commentators, our, our politicians, our educators, are constantly our communicators, they're constantly giving us human tradition, human philosophy that's backed up by demonic forces. It is not talking about God, it's talking about the lies of the devil and they're around us all the time. And Paul says, don't be deceived by this, don't be led astray. Now as part of the reason why we, should, why we shouldn't be led astray, Paul explains that we've already been set free from such things. In verse 13 and 14, he then goes and says, You who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. By cancelling the record of our death, it stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in their, to open shame by triumphing over, over them in him. So the cross was a great victory against human, empty human philosophy and tradition the lies of the elemental spirits of this world. And notice it's in the middle of this passage that we're told we were buried with him. What Paul is saying is have done with the ways of this world. Have done with empty philosophy that takes you away from God. Human thinking. Have done with it because we are already buried with Christ. Interestingly, as he presses on in chapter 3, um, uh, I won't have much to say about this um, I probably almost run out of time notice chapter 3 and verse 3 for you have died and your life is hidden stop there for a second standing on the edge of a grave as we bury our friend he has died and his life is hidden she has died and her life is hidden this is the experience of standing at the edge of a grave once we bury them their life has gone from us Notice what Paul goes on to say here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now there's a new perspective on burial that comes from the knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And I should say, therefore, the final thing, that's, a point, well, that's point B and point C, the final thing is this means we grieve, but we grieve, we don't grieve like those who don't have any hope. This comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 and 14, which I commend to you, but I won't read now. When a Christian dies, we grieve. It's always a grievous thing to lose a friend, a family member, a brother and sister in Christ, a human being. We always grieve. There's always a wrench when death comes along. But the Christian gospel tells us that while we grieve, in the midst of our grief, we can have a great hope that Christ will bring uh, our brother or sister or whoever it is that we're uh, burying that day, 
Christ will bring those who have fallen asleep with him when he returns. Again, a line from uh, the Anglican funeral service, we commit our brother or our sister to the ground in the sure and certain hope of resurrection. And so Christ's burial brings a new perspective um, to our burials as we know that we've been buried with him. Uh, Our life is hid with him in Christ, in God, and he will bring us. Uh, He'll bring those we have departed. He'll bring them with us at his return. Now that then finally gives us something to proclaim. Go, leave the dead to bury their own dead, he said to that young man. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Every Christian has a message to say at the gravesite. As we bury people, we can say the great message of the kingdom of God. We can proclaim to others that in such a sad world, death is no longer the great mystery because Jesus has shown us what it's all about. And not only that, death is no longer the great enemy because Jesus has shown us a way through it. For those who come to Christ and are buried with Christ, our burial looks very, very different. And for those who are in Christ, as we bury them, we bury them in the sure and certain hope that he will bring those who have fallen asleep with him when at last he returns. Okay. So there's some lessons from the graves, from the edge of the graveside, lessons from the burial of Christ. Let me pray and then I think we've got a song. Heavenly Father, thank you very much for Jesus' burial. Thank you that our, your word tells us that we have been buried with him. Please help us, Father, to live our lives as if that's so, to be done with our old life, our body of sin, to live for Christ instead. And Heavenly Father, we pray that as we contemplate our own death or the death, deaths of, our, of others, we pray that we might have that sure and certain hope that even those who fall asleep in the Lord will be secure in Christ with God. And we pray for Jesus' sake. When the Sabbath was over, very early on the first day of the week, just after the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared they might go to anoint Jesus' body. And And after they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away from the tombs. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, he back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. As when they entered the tomb, they they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly a young man dressed in a white robe that gleamed like lightning sitting on the right side. And in their pride, the women bowed down their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? The young woman said to the women, Do not Don't be alarmed, he said, for I know that you 
you are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He is not here, he is not risen. Remember how he told you. Come and see the place where he lay. While he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter, Peter however, and the other disciple started got up and for ran the to the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. Bending over, he saw saw the strips of linen lying lying by themselves, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went, went away to their homes, wondering to himself what had happened. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said to her, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Okay, well, thank you again, Alberus. Again, any reflections upon that reading? Good. What did you notice? Unity, yeah. yeah, that's right. So, some were not talking at all while 
was chipping in, so it was nicely harmonised. Yeah, okay, yeah, good. Yep, okay, so um, yet again, but that, it's, it's, I wanted to do that reading in the light of um, the charge that the uh, empty tomb stories have a lot of contradictions, and we certainly heard the differences, but are they contradictions? No, it's nice, no. nicely melding together, and um, so we'll, we'll be talking a little bit more about that, that uh, in a second. Let us pray as we come to our second session that God teaches us from his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word and think about these great events in human history and how they bear in upon our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, for the empty tomb. We pray that you might be helping us to understand how significant this event is for us. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, well the story of the empty tomb is reported in all four Gospels, yet again. Um, the drift of the story is again quite simple, like the, like the burial. A group of women uh, come to the tomb of Jesus in the very early hours of the morning. The first opportunity after the Sabbath day is over to complete the process of burial. When they get there, they find the tomb open and the body gone. They encounter an angel who tells them that Jesus has risen and so his body is no longer here. Uh, they're invited to check out the place where it used to be laid. They rush back to Jerusalem and they eventually, uh, where they eventually get the message across to the other, the other apostles. Peter and John rush onto the tomb and confirm that it was indeed empty. Okay, now there's the, there's the, the drift of the story. Now, when we turn to the history, um, this is going to take us a little bit longer, okay? This, this, uh, thinking about the history here. Um, I, I will start by, with this notion of the historian wanting multiple attestation. Are there many sources saying the same thing? Well, you find the story of the empty tomb uh, reported by Peter in Acts chapter 2 in the first Christian sermon. So there's one. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 4, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he talks about Christ being buried and raised, so although he doesn't use the term empty tomb, it's certainly implied. The tomb that once was full is now empty, so that's two. And then we have four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, with the stories that we've read. So at best, the scholars would count that as six different sources. Um, sometimes you can count it, depending on how you count it, depending on how you think the gospel, whether the gospel writers were relying on each other, it might be down to about four. So between four and six sources talking about the same event, that's multiple attestation. Right? So we've got that historical criteria saying, suggesting that this may well be a true event. <coughs> but then we go a little bit further. When we come to look at the, the gospel accounts, we want to ask whether they uh, have historical veracity. That is, do they have the ring of truth? Can we determine where the report came from? Who was the source of knowledge? the eyewitness testimony. And when we look at that eyewitness testimony, how does it sound? Does it sound psychologically and historically uh, truthful? Does it, does it sound does it have the ring of truth? Do you recognise that a, a normal human being could have said these things, did these things, discovered these things? That's the kind of thing that, we're, we're, that I'm on about here at the moment. You see, the, the reports of the, of the empty tomb are often said to be wildly contradictory. That's a quotation. Wildly contradictory. <laughs> other, other people have said they cannot be reconciled. Strong statements like this. 
And this kind of language is being revived by our present-day angry atheists who haven't bothered to go back and check it out for themselves, but they're just repeating what people have said over the last 200 years, right? Um, but they're, you know, Richard Dawkins, Christy Hitchens, this, this crowd, Sam Harris, I've heard any of these names. Um, it's interesting, elsewhere in the world, our, the angry atheists tend to be scientists and writers and that kind of thing. In Australia, it tends to be comedians. I don't know what that's all about, but <laughs> Tim Minchin and all these sort of guys, that, that's, they're our intellectuals, apparently, our comedians. If, you know, anyway, I won't go there. Um, but there's, there's this wild contradiction, apparently, over this, this empty tomb story. And in the sceptic's hands, the apparent discrepancies contribute to the conclusion that there was no empty tomb. It's just a made-up story. Okay? So that's why I wanted to test with you today to see whether it actually happened. Um, if it's a made-up story, why are we here today? So, so you know, if it's not a made-up story, it's revolutionary for the whole world. So let's have a look at um, uh, how, these, how these stories stack up historically. Once again, just to, to spill my hand at the beginning, the discrepancies in the accounts, or the differences, shouldn't be awfulised. Do you like that word? <laughs> you shouldn't make them more awful than they are. Um, in fact, they can be harmonised quite nicely, and with a little bit of historical imagination, uh, you, you find that in fact they commend themselves to you as having the ring of historical truth. They sound thoroughly human to me uh, about how they could have happened. Let's have a look at some of these then. Let's hear the four-part harmony that we just heard read to us. Let's try and um, string it all together. Now, I'm going to try again to give you an account of how I think it happened on that day. So I'm going to be going from one gospel to the other. But as you heard from, the, from our four guys at the front, quite often it's, you know, two are talking and then one will have their story and they'll come back to the other. So it's actually quite, you know, it's not difficult to, to go from one gospel to the other, but I'll be doing that as we go. Um, how many points have I got under this? A to K, this one. This is my long stretch, okay? A to K. Okay. So A, we left Jesus' body in the tomb. Uh, that's where we left him on our last account. Only Matthew, at that point, has the story that the Jews placed a guard on the tomb. So that's Matthew 27, 62 to 66. They wanted Pilate to do it, but he said, you've got your own soldiers, you do it. Put, put your own guard on it, then you'll know it's done properly. So they go off and do it, so they put a guard on the tomb. Now perhaps the source of this information came from Joseph, um, since he was also part of the Jewish council, and he may well have heard uh, that them being instructed in this way, or heard the rumour through the, the other members of the Jewish council, although to me it seems less like, it doesn't seem as likely that Joseph reported this, because if it was from Joseph, why didn't it, it appear in Mark as well, which seems to be heavily linked to Joseph's testimony. There's another option. What if this story about the guards actually came from one of the guards themselves? Later in Matthew's account, he, he tells the vivid story uh, a story filled with vivid details about how the guards were there when the angel uh, rolled the stone away and they fell down as if dead. Now, here's a historical reminiscence. If you were one of those guards, you'd remember that fear that made you drop to the ground as if you're a corpse. You see? And um, perhaps one of these guards were the ones who reported the story. Um, they knew that this had happened because they'd been posted there and they knew the strange event of the resurrection day. Perhaps the guards themselves, one or one of them at least, lay behind this account. There's nothing strange in supposing that after seeing what they saw and knowing what they knew, 
one of them, or some of them, turned themselves over to Christ and became connected along with his other disciples and so they're able to report the story. So this is historical guesswork but it seems to me to be quite a, a, a reasonable possibility. Sometimes you've got to watch very carefully when you're reading your Bible for historical information. Have you ever noticed in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, uh, yes verse 7, listen to this, Acts chapter 6 verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So that's what he's telling you about, lots of people believed the word of God was being successful. But then he goes on to say, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's all you get, that's the only bit of information you get in the entire New Testament about the conversion of some of the Jerusalem priests who had voted to have Jesus put to death, who knew about the guard that had been posted on the tomb and therefore knew that the body had somehow disappeared and they knew it wasn't them who'd taken it. That impressed them and eventually they were converted. One verse tells us that. Now, it doesn't say the guards were amongst that number, but if you read the account in Matthew, the detail that's given about those, the story of those guards, it seems to me to be quite likely that one, of the, that one or some of those guards too were impressed by what they'd seen. How long could you, uh, you know, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, this is what I spoke about last time I was here, uh, if you remember, if you don't remember, that's what I still spoke about. Um, but, uh, you know, they, were, they, were, they went to the priest and said, the body's gone, and the priest paid them to tell a different story. And we read in Matthew's Gospel, they were paid a sufficient sum. And I've always wondered, what was the sufficient sum? How much would you need to be paid off so that you couldn't talk about a man who was dead who'd come back to life? I reckon some of them couldn't keep that in. Okay? And therefore I think maybe they're behind that account. So let's go on to second point B. The main event in each gospel goes on to recount uh, sorry, that each gospel goes on to recount is the discovery of Jesus' empty to Jesus' tomb on Sunday morning. The women hadn't been completely idle since Friday night. Luke tells us that that evening, on Friday evening, they had prepared spices. Luke 23, verse 56. And they were getting ready to do the proper duty of burying their friend and relative properly as soon as the Sabbath was over. And so they prepared the spices. Evidently from, uh, from, from where they sat, opposite the tomb, when they saw Jesus buried, they hadn't seen that Joseph and Nicodemus had already packed some hefty weight of myrrh and aloes around Jesus' body and placed it in the simple linen sheet. After all, there's no way those two groups would have known each other. This is a big mistake for those who want to say there's a huge discrepancy here. They were not known to each other, those two groups, at that time. And where the women sat, they, they must have seen uh, what was going on inside the tomb as Jesus' body was embalmed. And they were going to finish this job uh, come uh, the end of the Sabbath on Sunday morning. And so on Friday night they prepared the spices and then all day Sabbath they would have been doing their Sabbath kind of thing, which wasn't very much, with the smell of the embalming fluids in the air of their house. Everything waiting for Sunday morning. Point C. They must have realised as they prepared the spices that they didn't have enough. Or maybe there were certain spices that they needed that they didn't have any of. Because Mark reports that early on Sunday morning they bought some spices. Presumably they bought more spices on Sunday morning as they were going to the tomb. 
And then they went to see the tomb, um, as all four Gospels tell us, very early before dawn. Mark reports their conversation. They were worried about who would roll the stone away. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the door of the tomb? They were asking. So they, were, they hadn't fully planned what they were going to do and they were worried about this huge stone that had been rolled across the door as they watched it roll across the door on Friday night. Now at this point Luke doesn't name the women but Matthew and Mark agree that it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and Mark adds the name of Salome who was the mother of uh, James and John. At a later point in, the, in, uh, in his account, in Luke 24 verse 11, uh, Luke agrees that these women were there as well. John, however, only mentions Mary Magdalene. And that's interesting because his story seems to rely on her report and, about, and her report about what happened next, which we'll get to. So the women are named. They weren't any women. They weren't just vague women. They weren't um, anonymous women. They were these women who went to the tomb. Now what they found when they got there was that the stone was already rolled away from the tomb and the tomb was open. Now at this point Matthew only fills in the backstory, and his account, this account, could have very well come from the guards. It actually reports how the stone was rolled away. A great earthquake came in verse 2 and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. He was shining and he's bright and bright. And then in verse 4, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Sounds like a memory here of, the, of one of the guards reporting what had happened to them. There's the backstory, Matthew. Now at that point, so point E, John then tells Mary Magdalene's story. In John's Gospel, on the first day of the week, as Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb and then straight away, seeing that the, 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 the door was open, she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciples. So Mary comes along in the dark, sees the tomb opened and runs off. And she then goes and reports to Peter and the other disciples what she had discovered, that is, the tomb is open. That's all she saw at that point. Point F. According to Luke, the other women, however, pressed forward and looked into the tomb. To their great surprise, they found that the body had gone. Luke 24 and verse 3. When they went in, they did not find the body. Now this report must have come from one of these women, that is... Uh, from, from uh, Mary, the mother of Joseph and James, who's also the wife of Cleopas. Um, and I think she's probably the mo most likely one uh, to report the story because of other indications later in the chapter, Luke, Luke uh, 24. Notice the vivid details as we read this story. Notice the memory of the emotions especially and the sight and sounds that these women encountered. So they went in, they did not find the body, while they were perplexed about this. She remembers the confusion. Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Um, that, that's one indicator at least that the report probably goes back to 
female eyewitnesses because they commented on the clothing of the men. <laughs> and as they were frightened and bowed down to the ground. So this is vivid memory sort of stuff. Um, and then the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. So here's, it seems to me it goes back to the, the women, probably Mary, the wife of Cleopas, um, and uh, the sights and sounds and memories are there giving us the ring of truth. So, point G, as they enter the, uh, the tomb, they see a young man in Mark or an angel in Matthew or dazzling, uh, two dazzling beings in Luke, uh, angels again, angelic figures, and these, these, this daz- these dazzling beings speak to them and they say two things. One, they say, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, he has risen, he is not here, see where they laid him. So that sort of testifying that the tomb is empty. And the second thing they say is, go and tell the disciples and Peter, he is going to Galilee and he'll meet you there. So that's what happens, the, the, the message these women are given. Point H. And here's where it gets tricky. What do they do in response to this word from the angel? What do they do? Well, listen to Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They said nothing to anyone, understandably so, because they were afraid. We've all been afraid at various times. We've been all, all been afraid at various times, so afraid that we don't say what we know we should have said. And we can understand that this is exactly um, the response that you, a response that's true to life, has the ring of truth about it um, here for these women. But this is where it gets tricky, because listen to what the other, the other Gospels say. Matthew 28, verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with, great, with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Or Luke, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and all the rest. So the big question here is, did they say anything or did they not say anything? Mark says they didn't say anything. The other two Gospels say they did. This surely is a contradiction, right? Um, well, let me take you through this one. I, don't, I think, did they say something did, or did they not say something? The answer is yes. <coughs> they didn't and they did. Let me, take, let me take you through how I think this works here. This is a different difference that almost everyone notices and it sounds like a flat contradiction. Uh, but I think both statements are true in their own time. I think the silence of the women, as Mark reports it, was only temporary. I think it lasted minutes or maybe hours uh, rather than hours, days or weeks or years. I think it was a temporary silence. And this too is true, it seems to me, to human reactions. Psychologically true. And it's probable psychologically. What would you have done? Come to a tomb expecting a body, find the tomb rolled, the door rolled away, go inside, no body, meet an angel, fall to the ground, so filled with fear at their dazzling clothes and what they say. They tell you, go off to say, what are you going to be doing? Your overwhelming emotion, as we know from the story, not just Mark but from Luke as well, the women are frightened and perplexed and confused. What are you going to do? Rush off and find a friend, perhaps. Well, what I think what's happening here 
is that um, they were afraid and they, and they didn't say anything to anyone in those initial stages. Now by the time they get to the apostles, later in the account, according to Luke 24 and verse 10, uh, there's a list of women, but Joanna is added to the list and she's not there earlier when they go to the tomb. Who is this Joanna? Joanna was the wife of Chusa. Now, as you all know, uh, you know that from Luke chapter 8, verse 2, the wife of Chusa. Who was Chusa? Well, Chusa was Herod's household steward. And so he was high up in the Herod um, household. Herod had a palace in Jerusalem, and during Passover time we know that he was there because Jesus was sent to him as part of the trial. Uh, Pilate sent him to Herod and then back to, back, to, uh, back to Pilate again. So the household steward would have been there in the palace uh, with Chusa was there with Joanna and his wife. And we know that these are Galileans. We know from chapter 8 in Luke 8.3 8, that Joanna had become a disciple of Jesus. Now how did she suddenly turn up in Luke 24.10 when she wasn't there at the tomb in, Luke, in the early parts of, of the account? This is where I'm guessing, but this is, I'm telling you that, I'm guessing. But it seems to me to re- be reasonable that something like this might have happened. See, uh, if Jonah, Jonah wasn't there at the, at the tomb, but she turns up at the report in another house, it seems possible to me that the women ran from the tomb, not saying anything to anybody, just like Mark's account tells us, and goes to Joanna's house in the city, that is, Herod's mansion, afraid to tell anyone, especially apostles, and they are at another house in the city, uh, but once they get to Joanna and the other Galilean women start talking, they decided to act uh, decided that it was best to, um, to complete their mission and go to the larger group and tell the story of what they'd seen. And so Joanna joins them and they go off to where the apostles were, probably the Apostle John's house, and then they get there and they burst in and they start talking about what they had seen. So initially, didn't say anything because they were so afraid, but eventually they do speak within a matter of Minutes to hours, not hours to days, if I can put it that way. So they burst in in, in, in uh, Luke 24. Uh, they, they burst in and, and spill the beans about what had gone on. So my next point. At this point, Luke's perspective shifts to the viewpoint of the apostles. So his eyewitnesses must, have now, must be now drawn from those who are amongst that group in Luke 24, 10, uh, 9 and 10. And they tell, these eyewitnesses tell of the women bursting into the house, um, babbling away about their news. And by now the group has met up again with Mary Magdalene and she comes in as well and they report um, what they had seen at the tomb. But look at the response they met with. So it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Any wonder they were afraid to talk to them. When they got there, they didn't have a good reception. But would you, ex- would you believe it? Would you expect anything different? Um, these, the apostles are just being realistic in a sense. Think about the claim that's being made. A dead man, buried in a tomb, rolled, a stone rolled over the, the entranceway, but now these women are saying they found the tomb rolled, the stone rolled away, the body gone, and some angels telling them that Jesus has risen. 
Okay, my next point, uh, point J. So these words seem like nonsense to them, it says. Now there are different kinds of nonsense. Uh, I guess when we think something's nonsense we don't like to think what kind of nonsense it is, but there are different kinds of nonsense. Let me explain two kinds of nonsense. Sometimes something is nonsense because it can't happen and someone says that it did. It can't happen. Um, If I jumped out of a third floor window, the law of gravity says I will be on the, the, smashed on the pavement. If I do that and say that I survived, you say, no, that can't happen. The law of gravity is against that, right? So that sort of a can't happen. But sometimes things are nonsense because you say something happened that just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen rather than can't. There's a vast difference between those two things. So take, for example, the resurrection of Jesus, which is what we're talking about in the end. Many people in the ancient world, as in our world, exclude resurrection from things that are possible. It can't happen. Dead men can't rise. Resurrection is impossible. And therefore, if someone says that a man rose from the dead, it is nonsense, because such things can't happen. Dead people can't come back to life. Now, this is what's called the approach of the rationalist. So you just think out from your brain and you say, these things just can't happen. Therefore, I won't even listen to any claim that they did. On the other hand, you could say resurrections don't happen. We've got hundreds of years of human history of planting people in the ground and they don't come back. So the facts are against this resurrection. Resurrections just don't happen in human life. Now this is the approach of the empiricist. Someone who wants evidence of the real world, facts, things that, that, you know, look at the facts and draw conclusions from that. But notice there's a big difference between those two kinds of nonsense. The rationalist, it can't happen, therefore I won't even look at any claim that comes along that says it has, whereas the empiricist, yeah, it doesn't happen. So far in the world these sort of things haven't happened, but you're always open to the evidence, so you might think, oh, well, what if it did happen? Now, it seems to me that Peter must have been an empiricist rather than a rationalist, if that's not speaking uh, out of time. Because in verse 12, you can imagine the big, uh, the big fisherman, some people say he's slow, I just like to think he's careful with what he does, but you can imagine him sitting there thinking, um, as everybody in, in the room is thinking, what's this nonsense these women are talking about? They went to a tomb, the stone was rolled away, the body was gone, angels spoke to them. This kind of thing has never happened before. And then you can imagine the wheels ticking over in Peter as he's listening to them. And he, and he hears them say that the angel had said, remember what Jesus had told you in Galilee, that after he died he would rise again. And then Peter, remembering, hey, I was there, I heard him say that. What if that's what's happened? Because in verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Now at this point, John gives us his own testimony of, these, this, of this moment and the subsequent events. Uh, I don't know if you heard of when um, this is one of the moments where all three guys stopped, but John squeaked in his little message over the top. Because uh, sorry, Luke tells us that Peter got up and ran away, and John has a long account which basically says, "I was there too. <laughs> I ran too." 
So Peter gets there and looks into. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm reading a little bit ahead of myself there. Um, so uh, in John's account, John 20, uh, we read that Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, um, was heard from Mary Magdalene. And then verse 3, but Peter then came out of it with the other disciple. They went towards the tomb. They both ran. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And looked stooping in, he saw the little cloth lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, followed him in, went into the tomb, saw the little cloth lying, and the napkin which had been on his head, not lying with the little cloth, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and he believed. For as yet they did not know the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. Here we see that Peter ran and John tells us that he was there as well. Um, and they saw the empty tomb and they believed. And it seems like both the men then ran off home, forgetting poor old Mary Magdalene, who had run along after them as well. Remember she arrived early in the morning, saw the, t- the stone rolled away and took off. So he, she hadn't been in the tomb yet. But she then arrives and she stayed around and she became therefore the first to see the risen Lord who appeared to her in John 20, verse 11 to 18. But that's another story. That's an appearance, not the empty tomb. So this is where our account of the empty tomb finishes. Okay? Now, so what have I done there? Um, I think if we go through, despite the differences in the accounts, um, I don't know whether I've convinced you, but I think you can put together a pretty good story of the events that happened that morning, and you can actually hear the voices of the eyewitnesses coming through at various stages. And when you listen to their voice, they sound like they have the ring of truth about them. To me, as a historian, not even as a theologian or a Christian believer, but as a historian, it sounds to me like this thing actually happened. As amazing as it is, on a certain morning, uh, which we can roughly, we can pretty well date to the 5th of April, in the year we call AD 33, 